0: Welcome back to the Disaster Tough Podcast. I am so excited for this episode. I think for maybe six months or a year, I've been wanting to get this person onto the podcast, Brad Milliken. I keep seeing everything he's doing on LinkedIn, and I'm like, yes, exactly right, exactly right, exactly right. He's doing lots of really amazing things for the field, across the field, the whole deal. There's lots of different um, projects. Uh, I think he even had a fundraiser a while back on LinkedIn or on Instagram. I even helped out with that like this guy is just so cool working on so many different projects and i thought you know what the world really needs to to learn more about him he's already done some other media so he's he's a top of his game but on top of that uh he and i were talking right before this podcast began and he was hitting on so many key areas that i was like man this is so excellent for the field um and so i thought hey we gotta start recording now so we get this stuff on here so without any further ado brad welcome to the show
1: Hey, what's going on, John? Thanks for thanks for having me on.
0: Absolutely. All right. So you have done a lot of great things uh, from military service through otherwise. Can
1: you just give a quick synopsis of what you've done for the field? Sure. I, I think the, the quickest synopsis is just, you know, right place, right time, right place, right time. Just connect connect those dots. Um, so it started out uh, uh, in the, the search and rescue community in, in the Coast Guard. And that was really my first kind of formal introduction to emergency management. And then uh, after the Coast Guard, worked for the Pacific Disaster Center, doing a handful of different things, mostly in in Latin America and the Caribbean, came back to the kind of federal side, doing emergency management uh, support with the National Guard Bureau, Uh, did about a year at the White House as the primary planning section chief there, um, which was a a crazy place to work kind of alongside Secret Service. And uh, now I'm working for an international NGO called Global Support and Development, uh, running our, our maritime program.
0: So nothing big, you know, just
1: the white yeah, house, <laughs> just national
0: card, international. It's a really amazing stuff. Uh, when I got into emergency management, I also had the international perspective The tsunami had happened in Japan or it was about to happen in Japan. And I was already working for NGOs and the tsunami happened. And like I all went all in on the international stuff. And then as I learned more about as emergency management as a profession, or at least as emerging profession, Uh, I did a lot of stuff in the U.S. And so my perspective has always been a little skewed as well. I want to say skewed, but different because those pieces of international and national um, sometimes come into like great conflict of what those things mean or how does that that operate. And sometimes there's great lessons learned for both. Before we get into like all like the real meat of things, because you have such a great understanding of both perspectives, could you just give like a quick highlight? Hey, this is what I noticed from international. This is what I learned from national that could benefit either one.
1: Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that that I, I I've talked about uh, with some other folks, but uh, all of the systems work, right? Like ICS works, NIMS works, the the cluster system works. It all it all works, um, but it only works if everybody gets it, and uh, if you know. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter. You know, it's not like there's the one solution or that, you know, some country has figured out their version of it. It's, it's, you know, it's their version because it works for them, um, where the conflict happens and it happens more on the international side, uh, is when, you know, folks come to, uh, to apply, you know, their version of the system that, that they're, you know, familiar with without looking to figure out what the parallel is like logistics is logistics, getting, getting stuff to, to people who do things right, uh. The, those processes are all the same. It's just a matter of you know how quickly can you adapt to the the lingo where you're at, and it's it's the same uh, it's the same in the in the states. I mean, like NIMS is great, ICS is great. I think the best rollouts of of you know both of those have not been strictly adherent to NIMS and ICS, but it's because people know enough to adapt you know whatever principles to the the problem they're dealing with. You know, the more everybody knows about it the easier it is for everybody to kind of adapt and and improvise.
0: Real quick, we're going to pause for this week's disaster-tough endorsements. The L3Harris Extreme 400P radio solves problems and is specifically designed for emergency services. How do we know? We field-tested it with medical, urban search and rescue and collapse and confined structures. This radio is amazingly tough. Check out the L3Harris Extreme 400P radio at L3Harris.com right now. How do you spell Doberman Emergency Management? EOP, OEP, HVA, HMP, Thyra, TTX, Drone, PDA. Whenever you need an expert, Doberman Emergency Management field experts are there for support. Contact an expert at DobermanEMG.com today. If you served in the military, you've probably worn Proper Apparel. Proper Apparel is now reaching out to first responders and those who love the outdoors. Check out Proper Apparel from the outdoors to the EOC where proper. Okay, let's jump back in. Yeah, I love that. I I think the difference between really like an expert in systems and an amateur in systems is when an an expert comes to the table, they know which rules they can and cannot break and which ones they are flexible. And the amateur assumes that they know all of it. And so they just start like they just start doing on their own without really any kind of like gap analysis.
1: Like, oh, we're breaking rules.
0: Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. we're, We're innovative. You're like, oh, wait, are you innovative? Steve Johnson he's the head of uh, counter Seaburn for the british army he was on the podcast talking about being an expert and uh he he dove into that a little bit of like hey like every like four or five years seven years like people come up with these innovative ideas and it was just the idea seven years ago and i saw that real time on the fema imat team they kept on changing the name like i was on imat west before it was blue then it was west now it's red And like, they keep on like changing, like trying to rebrand and rebranding is very important. There's a, there's an argument for that. But what was really fascinating to me is like some of the newer people on the team they are like, Hey, now we're on like a two hour standby of like, once we get a call, we're supposed to be out the door in two hours. They're like, we were, we were doing that. We were doing that eight years ago. What happened to that? So (laughs) I I just think like, you know, we have uh, a very short term memory and it's also in the military services, like I've been working with NATO a little bit on um, helping out uh, foreign humanitarian assistance, FAJs, And a lot of lessons learned from World War II have kind of been forgotten despite a lot of urban warfare. And it's like, why is that happening? And yeah. I don't know if you've seen that in your in your world as well, but I've been yeah. trying to figure out like. Why don't uh, for all the after action reports, why don't we have a great memory?
1: Yeah, exactly. I think there's, I mean, it, there's the, the Homeland Security Digital Library, which is a, a great resource, but it's, it isn't, there are other places like it, but you know, there, there are folders real and, and digital where AARs go to die. And after they're written, they're filed away and, and that's it. Um, and if you're not in the process of pulling out the the AARs, And I think there's, there's something to be said for, you know, there, there's this, I don't even want to call it a debate, but there's this debate about, you know, academic, uh, versus, you know, academic experience, operational experience. If that operational experience isn't reaching back to say, here's the last thing that happened that was kind of similar, you know, what lessons did we learn then? Where is that file kept? Let me read that AAR. If that's not, you know, step one for dealing with a new dynamic problem. I don't want to hear about your, you know, all your operational experience if it's not helping us do anything any better.
0: Yeah, that's, that's, um, man, there's so many different areas. I just want to like keep going on rabbit holes for everybody else's situation awareness. What we talked about before the podcast is not what we just talked about for the last five minutes. Um, and it just shows like your breadth of knowledge and just like want to explore some of your thoughts on that. But I, you know, you're bringing up like the operational experience a hundred percent we have uh two sides of the same coin we have people who've been doing the job for a long time that not necessarily have the analytical background or the former education background problem where they think they know everything because the the blinders are on and they they have their own experience at the same time there has been emerging and it feels like it's it's a fairly new thing i I know it's been out for a while but last the last two or three years there's a lot of people who've been calling themselves like an emergency manager and like touting that they're quote unquote, an expert, I said, expert word again, and yet they've never actually been in a disaster. And for me, like I, before I started, responded to disasters, I, there was a little part of me that felt like a fraud. Like I wanted to get out there. I wanted to experience that. And then I got a whole bunch of it and I realized that there was, you know, that there, you need to have the mold of the two. Do you feel like that that's happening in our field, or do you think like maybe I'm a little off there?
1: No, I th- I think you nailed it. I think there there is a, and I do want to give some time to the bit about like, uh, some of the imposter syndrome stuff, where like you're only as relevant as your most the most recent problem that you've solved, uh, and and I think that's real, um, because I think if you know if you've been in emergency management in in ten years and you don't have something recent to kind of hang your hat on, what are you doing? The world the world is crumbling around us, right? Like that's uh, what, what's going on. I, I think, you know, balance between academic and operational experience, you know, balance above all else. If I think you can have a PhD in sociology and social disruption. Um, but if you're not applying that knowledge, like, okay, great doc. Uh, Uh, yeah. Um, but then if you've been in the field for however many, you know, decades, but you don't really know how to, you know, you just know how to tread water, then why are we expecting that you're going to help us move anywhere? Um, I think, you know, foundationally, I think emergency management is about helping the people that help people. And I think we do that through trying to answer two foundational questions. And I think that's why do bad things happen? And what are we going to do about it? If you're not actively trying to, you know, develop a right now understanding of one of those two questions, we are not advancing the field. We are not keeping pace with How quickly everything around us is changing. Uh, I mean, there's like big watershed moments for for the field. COVID's probably the the biggest, most recent one. If you're still applying your pre-COVID understanding to post-COVID problems, you know why are we expecting better outcomes? Um, Everything has changed. We need to, you know, we need to behave accordingly.
0: Yeah, there. I think of this is kind of a, a. I want to say dark one, but Uvaldi of the after after action for Uvaldi is uh, really intense. And it basically, of uh, the many problems that were in Uvaldi shooting, one of which was that they were using the tactics from that were being taught in early 90s. You know, call out. You never do a call out in an active shooter. Got a kid, kid shot right? Like, there's there's a lot of stuff that is just like outdated. Uh, what I told somebody the other day, and it was kind of brutal, and I realized that so. Sorry for that person, but they were talking about like they they knew so much more than everybody else, blah, 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 because they've been doing it for, quote, 30 years. I said, well, if you build a plane for 30 years, but it can't fly, what's the point of the plane? Like at the same time, uh, you know, I'm a person. The the podcast is called Disaster Tough. Like it's about leadership who understand disasters. What I find most fascinating about your comment, though, um, is when I talk to people who don't really understand that balance of different things, their explanations of what emergency management is becomes like paragraphs, pages. They have like they have an explanation for what the words mean that don't really match the definition. We talked about that for a little bit. But um, you just said, you know, emergency management is about helping people who help people. Like these short one-sentence explanations is what we need so desperately in our field. Yeah. And it's like get away from all the extra, all the distraction.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and I think like I I mean, uh I I agree. Um and I think if, you know, how much of whatever phase of emergency management becomes a, a communications problem, you know, it's it's whatever problem it is, and it is also a communications problem. If you're not able to, you know, figure out how to break complex ideas down into things that people can digest, like you need to work on it. (laughs) Yeah,
0: or yeah, exactly. And it might not be the field for everybody. I love taking uh, these complex problems and disaster and just like, okay, like how do we figure this out? Like that, that part of my brain is exciting. Uh, I think a great compliment, which sometimes doesn't seem like a compliment is when, when somebody says you're explaining these things like really simply, it's more complex than that. Like if you can explain complex problems simply just kind of like what you're saying, like you're in like yeah. Albert Einstein was famous for doing that. The guy knew everything under the sun quite literally and yet, you know, could talk to any crowd. That's a great trait to have. That's what emergency manager has to have. For
1: sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think too the, the being able to to break things down, you know, it, it's it's good, effective communication. but Also, it helps with timeliness. A simple message takes less time to, you know, to, to understand. And I, I'm thinking about like Maui fire stuff where there was so, there were so many problems with misinformation and, you know, weaponized misinformation. And then all that stuff kind of grew, um, you know, the, the messages that were coming from authoritative sources that were, you know, trying to combat some of the, the really harmful, you know, crap that was out there the stuff that was going that, you know, that had the longest legs was the stuff that was easy to digest. It was quick to get out there. Uh, and you know, as like we, (laughs) some of the stuff of like direct energy weapons and FEMA shock troops are like, you know, it's like, it's comical stuff. But like if, if that's keeping somebody from doing something they should be doing, like you got to treat it like it's a problem because it is. Yeah. I mean,
0: the, there was, um, a TTX we did a long time ago, uh, and the, I actually shared on the, the, the membership side of the TRL. One of the uh, injects is that this guy, this cons- conspiracy theorist, uh, goes on. This is a TTX for a tornado, and his big conspiracy is uh, uh, tornadoes didn't um, exist before nuclear power plants. And in the TTX, you see a lot of the people like dismiss it as like a joke that's ridiculous. Then they find out later in the exercise that 80 million people watched that video. Yeah. They're like, it's, it becomes a problem if you don't address the ridiculous. And how do you address the ridiculous? So I guess like my, my big question for you then, because we're like, we're talking about a lot of different touch points here Yeah. and kind of rapid fire and it's kind of fun, but like in, in terms of solutions, in terms of like your real world, what you've had to deal with, you mentioned Hawaii digestible information. What are like the top, like things that you recognize in our field right now that we need to address? Like before we started recording, you mentioned innovation. Could you just hit on some of these points for us?
1: Yeah, I think, uh, it's a phrase that, uh, attributed to a guy named Mike, Mike Amatis, who I, who I worked with uh, at the white house, but, um, accept the premise. If something comes across your desk, you know, people think that FEMA shock troops are, are, you know, burning houses down. Don't just dismiss it like that. Like if a problem presents itself to you, accept it for what it is. And I don't think that means, you know, be naive or don't ask questions or don't try to get more information. But if you say like, I'm going to, I'm going to treat this thing that's happened as, as it's presented itself, and I'm going to move forward making, you know, I'm going to make decisions based on My, my current understanding of the problem, and you know, that that's going to develop. But like you say, like you acknowledge a problem for what it is and you start making decisions. I think there's the, like, there's kind of the, the, the seesaw of, you know, you, you want as much information as possible before you make a decision, but also sometimes like, you don't, you don't have time. So. Uh, A phrase that we used in the search and rescue world was, you know, sometimes you have to make decisions with 100% consequence based on 50% information. Sometimes you hear Mayday on the radio and like, that's all you're going to get. You're not going to get all the information you'd like, but you still have to go anyway. Um, so I, I, think, you know, accepting the premise and then moving forward with, with, you know, a current understanding, um, is a, is a big one with the innovation thing. And, and to our, our comments kind of before. Innovation is, is a buzzword, and, and emergency management, in my opinion, has a buzzword problem. Um, things that are innovative are not inherently useful. Um, things that are innovative can absolutely be useful. Uh, we live in a dynamic world, and we need new dynamic solutions. Um, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean we should be a field of solutions looking for problems. We have enough problems. Um, and you know, our understanding of the problem, why do bad things happen? What are we going to do about it? Uh, you know, if we're not trying to innovate with checking those two boxes, we are probably not doing something that, that is useful. Uh, we, we, we talked about drones and, you know, don't be the person that shows up with terabytes of raw data, um, that nobody's asked for without, you know, the application of here's the problem that I'm trying to solve for you. Um, cause then you're just, you know, you're just wasting everybody's time. And, and time is
0: like time in a disaster means everything. Once you get behind the eight ball, you never get in front of it. Like, yeah. um, it, it's such a, it's such a beast to think about the time component. And, you know, funny enough, we, we calculate things in operational periods. People, when their house homes get destroyed, they oper- they, they think in years, right? Like I'm not going to have a home this year. That's a thing that people go through japan i mean right before we started recording a couple days before yeah Uh, i've lived in japan three times earthquakes are not not usually the big fear it's usually the the tsunami and yet this earthquake caused a lot of damage just like kobe did like um, the uh, the kobe disaster um i think it was in the 80s but sometimes earthquakes uh, despite all their building codes despite all the stuff still cause a lot of damage and we need to to understand that going back to the original premise of international versus national um the same thing can apply in the u.s as u.s versus abroad one of the biggest problems that we have is not understanding like the local culture and customs of the people that we're we, we go in there with our systems with our our things and it can be very detrimental like even the psychology of it like um you know, how we present ourselves. I don't think there's a lot of forethought into like, Oh, cause of the, cause of the time problem or like, Oh, we just got to get in there with all this stuff. And you're like, they're not going to accept that. Like, it's not going to be helpful for them.
1: Yeah. I think the, the concept of coping capacity, I, I, find super, super interesting. And I think it's, it's separate from resilience, um, separate from, from durability, but you know, independently. What is a community able to do with no external intervention and, uh, spent some time working in the Bahamas before Dorian. And then, uh, certainly have been there, uh, plenty of times since. But, um, I would say the average Bahamian knows more about hurricanes than like your average European meteorologist. Like they just, you have to, if you live on a sandbar in the most hurricane prone region in the world, like you you learn or you, (laughs) you learn or you don't survive. Um, and so it was really interesting working alongside of alongside some of the government folks who were talking about early warning systems. We're talking about, you know, notifications, but the, the government, uh, actors, you know, not, I want to say not, you know, arrogantly, so not detrimentally so, but they were, you know, able to acknowledge like, yeah, you know, we're a, we're pushing this sort of information out. But we know that, like, we're doing that because we, we should, we're not necessarily doing it because the public relies on us in, in, you know, to digest meteorological information. They're, you know, they're so far ahead of us in, in a couple of these different respects. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. I think I, I have no experience with Japan, but like, I'm sure, you know, with respect to seismic hazards, like it's just a part of the culture. You Figure it
0: out, or you or you don't. There, the Japan has the
1: best building codes in the world,
0: like by far. Yeah. Like, if you look at the 2011 Tohoku disaster, 9 earthquake, it wasn't the earthquake that caused all the damage. It was a tsunami. It was a tsunami that impacted the Fukushima power plant. Like, so, uh, I, in fact, I have this funny story where um, you sleep on the floor in Japan on these uh, things called futons. It's kind of like um, large mats. And uh, I had a roommate and he's across the, the the room from me and I'm sleeping. And so in my dream, I'm like kind of starting to wake up. And my my roommate is like screaming and like p- pushing me. And I'm like, dude, what are you doing? You know, and I wake up and I realize he's still on the other side of the room. But I was just like rolling with the earthquake. Yeah. My first big <laughs> earthquake. And I, I like it was just my mind that I had like tried to put pieces together. I was like, oh, this is what an earthquake feels like. And yeah. yet, like nobody talked about it that that day. Like it went out in the, the world and nobody could like it wasn't like a topic of conversation it was that common. It was like not even a concern. It was something that was truly mitigated. Yeah. And so when an earthquake does cause damage, that's like kind of a big deal. Um, and I think about that, like that analogy almost for the field of emergency management, like what has become so common. That we don't know like what to talk about like gosh dude, the words matter things is a big deal for me i'm so sick of the word and this is like funny people are going to kill me over this and i i realize that but the word resilience we keep using it wrong i, I want to yeah. be resilient that is not my that's not my ultimate goal though my ultimate goal is not to have to be resilient
1: i i think i think a lot of people so it's, it's the buzzword thing right i think a lot of people use resilient when they mean durability specifically. I'm not, i I think the, you know, there's, there's the bit, especially, especially in a response context of yes, there's, you know, withstanding and recovering and, and there's this big resilience umbrella that just gets thrown all over the place. But, uh, you know, if we're talking specifically about with, withstand, you know, expose hazard exposure and making it through so that you don't need a response. Yeah, that that's a that's a very, you know, narrow slice of the the larger
0: resilience. uh, Yeah, it's not even the right word for that. Like, that's not that's not how if I want if I is a very good. There's a very easy thing. If you're an emergency manager listening right now and your boss is not an emergency manager, they and they especially if you're new, like if you're out of hospital or you're at, you know, a corporate office space, a campus just walk over to that Dean or that supervisor and say, what does resilient mean to you? We want to be a resilient campus. And they are not going to come up with the same thing you're thinking right now. Like it's just not going to happen. Now say the same thing as saying we mitigate disasters at our campus. Ask them what they think that means. Like that is such a different, I can't even tell you how many emergency managers I've met in different disasters or county level, specifically emergency managers who think the hazard mitigation plan goes into effect after the disaster. Yeah. Like, oh, now our hazard mitigation plan, now we can use it to get grants. You're like, you, you blew it. <laughs> you, yeah, you blew it. I don't want to harp on anybody, I really don't, but. Yeah. Sometimes the system is also set up to to think of it like that. Like when we start getting into checking the box for a hazard mitigation plan where people think it's for grants after disaster, maybe you should think about how that grant process is set up. Now, a lot of people get it right, and that's good, too. But as a field, we have uh, we have a language problem. And the language problem is no one knows what you're talking about when you talk to them. Yeah. So yeah. I, I don't know.
1: And well, how's everybody going to know how smart I am if I'm not using the, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the most recent buzzwords, buzz right? There's I have a story about, uh, you know, applying kind of that, that same problem to like the international context is when you start crossing languages. Oh, it's like, it's, it's another, you know, whirlpool of, of, of things to get sucked into and I've, i got a story about, uh, I was working for the Pacific disaster center. We were in Argentina working on on a couple different things, but um, I had got this this plan that I was trying to read uh, or a government report about you know costliest natural hazards. Uh, it's in Spanish. My Spanish isn't great; um, certainly wasn't great uh, at that point in time. So I downloaded the the trusty Google Auto Translate toolbar and let it go to work. And uh, the Spanish word for locust is langosta the spanish word for lobster is also lingo oh, no. so this whole locust report was like you know and whatever annual cycle you know millions of lobsters descend from the andes and there was a quote from like you know the minister of agriculture that was like as soon as you see the cloud of lobsters flying towards you you just you go home because there's nothing you can do and i remember like looking at all of like the argent you know, the, the Argentine folks like, can you, can someone shed some light on this like very specific Argentina flying lobster problem? <laughs> and uh, I didn't know those a thing. <laughs> yeah. Sounds real serious, but, uh, that's funny. Yeah.
0: And like the report is obviously like an official report, so there's no humor in it. Right. Exactly. Yeah, for sure hey we're gonna do a quick pause x to thank our sponsors l3 harris proper apparel impulse doberman emergency management and all those subscribers who reach out to us and give us a donation to help us keep us going let's jump back in there's there's many. like actually that's probably a really good um suggestion for somebody who wants to get better at their job is to try to translate your job into another language yeah. one of the best things i ever did um and it was based off an opportunity but by the mere fact of learning japanese and learning like the epidemiology or like the like the baseline meaning of those words you're like oh like this is like what it means to them and, and especially the cultural context of those words you know we gosh, there's this is like the episode where I I might have to delete part of this, but there's somebody there's, well, there's a group of people who are saying there's no such thing as a natural disaster, an unnatural disaster. I'm like, if you try to translate that into literally any other language, you sound ridiculous, not only in English, but there's like, there's literally a Chinese character. Chinese characters are used in Japan, but there's a Chinese character for natural disaster. It is literally a thing. You can't, just change words cuz it doesn't like
1: feel nice to you. I I think that yeah. I I think the the sentiment behind
0: this is the part where we had up.
1: <laughs> oh. <laughs> sentiment behind the no da- natural disasters thing. I'm like so so down with. Sure. Um you know, natural hazards, hazards triggers, you know, a hurricane that's out in the middle of the ocean isn't bothering anybody, you know, that's just weather. I until like until we build something there to yeah, impact. I'm, like could could not be more on board with that way of thinking about the problem yes but if you're not able to communicate that in a way that matters it doesn't doesn't matter how well you understand it yeah Um,
0: hurricanes and wild. in fact wildfires are beneficial and helpful until they impact people yeah uh tornadoes are beautiful until they hit anything literally anything
1: so earthquakes happen every day avalanches yeah
0: yeah 100 percent. understand the sentiment of it how do we get how how do you and i solve the world's problem right now (laughs) of sentiment like this is what i'm trying to articulate and actually doing something that gets people on board because you're not ever going to get people on board by saying stop saying natural disaster i'm not going to stop saying natural disaster it's a thing
1: it's i think um i think by acknowledging it's not I think like with the the language to language bit saying like this isn't perfect this isn't going to this isn't going you know I'm aware that this is not going to translate perfectly into you know your uh you know your your vocabulary but I also think having you know control and experience with just terminology you know if you can if you can say the same thing in a different way say it in a different way uh I'm trying to think of like uh, so coastal North Carolina, coastal Virginia, Tangier Island, the Outer Banks, these are places that are dealing with climate change. You know, These are communities that are uh, uniquely threatened by the the changing climate. You try to talk to some of those folks about climate change, you have immediately turned them off from anything they might find useful. But if you can talk about king tide or erosion or like You can talk about all of the same things, omitting this, you know, what's become this politically charged word you've got, right? Um, And and I think, you know, there's, there's a similar way to, you know, if, if there's an issue with, you know, putting the two, you know, natural disaster together, you can still talk about hazards and you can still talk about, you know, post-disaster impacts. You can talk about social disruption or shocks. Uh, I think, you know, experience and, and, putting some of that stuff together, um, you know, the more, more tools you have in the bag, the, the better. And I think I'm just kind of rambling now, but I think journaling as an emergency manager is so critical. Um, I think most people write the way they speak. And I think they speak the way they think you think the fastest. You know, speaking, speaking happens with a little bit of thought, but writing is deliberate, right? So you, you have time to stop and, and choose the most appropriate word. Um, you have time to, you know, really think about how you can put things together. And the more you write, that impacts the way you speak that like it, it trickles back up in, into how you think. Um, so I, I had some advice when I was doing search and rescue stuff of, you know, the first time you, you ever do anything or anytime something happens for the first time, write about it. Um, try to capture what it was to go through something that first time. And and I still do that. Um, when I have new experiences as a professional, I try to sit down and and you know, write out, you know, what happened, what was I thinking, how did it go. And this is I'm not writing like, you know, books or anything, but like a page or two, you know, for an event. And I think that's done absolute wonders for, you know, how I try to deliberately put thoughts together.
0: Hmm if uh just gonna throw my two cents in here if you do write a book i'll totally read that book (laughs) um we can we can work on a book together but (laughs) the so basically it took us 33 minutes to get to this but we essentially have already discovered multiple different areas for somebody to like really kick off the new year um i'm a person who funny enough there's like all these different trends like like New Year's resolutions is not a trend. I think it's a great idea. Anytime you can look at your life and look as an easy time to say, I need to set some goals, setting goals is a fantastic idea. Yeah. Accomplishing those goals is even better working towards them at least. So we have identified a communications issue and an innovation issue, like, like thinking about the outcomes, like, is it beneficial? And one way to do that is to look at like the words you're using and like the language you're, you're speaking, I suggest learning a new language. You're talking about journaling. What are some other things that maybe can be on the individual level that can make a huge impact in somebody's career
1: oh man um i think uh this is this is advice that that was given to me and i i think it's it's done really well um there's nobody in this field that that's too important for you you may always ask for a moment of someone's time and and attention and if they choose to give it to you, be gracious and don't waste it. And the flip side is you will never be too important for anybody in this field. Uh, you know, if nobody owes you a moment of their time or attention, they choose to give it to you, be gracious and don't waste it. Um, I think practically what that looks like, find someone that's doing something that you want to be doing or something that you find interesting and hit them up. Say, I want to learn more about that. I think you're doing something interesting. Let me like, what can I learn from you? um i think that's you know i was thinking about uh you know some of the the linkedin stuff like uh linkedin's a made-up place there's no rules like call people <laughs> like uh,
0: you're like oh my gosh uh and I don't want to be awkward but you know what uh being awkward got people like you on this podcast yeah. <laughs> like, like, hey, <laughs> yeah like cool people that you know you start to see some of their comments on linkedin or other places and you're like I think they have a story to share. Like, I think they have a perspective that I want to hear about. Like, who am I? Like, yeah, I'm. I'm technically into the fifth season of this, of so five years doing this, like, for a little while, and yet it's so fascinating to hear like each person's like perspective, and like starting to link that now to like different other amazing leaders. Zach and I, on literally the last week's episode that we just shared, talked about Pete Gainer. You know, White House Cabinet member, Secretary of Department of Homeland Security, also FEMA admin. like the guy has the accolades of accolades, like Marine, he was accomplished as a Marine. He was a state director. like he's done all this stuff. most most approachable person I have ever met. Yeah. If you reach out to him, like he will most likely respond. And if you reach out to him and you're serious and you're deliberate in like what you want, like hey, I could use some advice for this or that he will most likely give it to you in the most kind and professional way you can imagine. And yet that guy has accomplished everything under the sun, like in our field, at least. Right. So like, what are you better than Pete? No, like that's like kind of like my, (laughs) like my, my realm. Like if you're not better than Pete, then you can still be approachable.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I think there's, uh, one of the things that I I think we're in a really interesting spot, uh, as a field is we're trying to figure out how gatekeeping to be. You know, there's, there's the bit about, you know, do I need an advanced degree? Do I need to go get, uh, you know, whatever certification? Um, and there's, you know, I think there are people that are trying to advocate for why those things are important as a manner of, Hey, like this is, this is a gate and this is what it means to get through it. But then also like, there's the, there's the pizza, like, yeah, reach out to whoever. And if you put a little bit of time into, you know, what you want out of that interaction, you're going to get something out of it. Um,
0: and to be fair, Pete has advanced degrees,
1: so yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Uh, go back to your original comment, right? Balance. Yeah, the person who only has academic experience, sorry, you're not good enough to be an expert. Somebody with only operational experience, I'm sorry, they're just not an expert. They they don't understand things from a different perspective from the analytical piece. The person who goes into the field who has a ton of operational experience and has formal education as well that formal education can come from a myriad of different sources i'm not saying yeah. where it needs to come from but if you're a person who ultimately is teachable and you're a person who is ultimately somebody who wants to get in the field you're going to blow everybody out, out of the water like you will be the tip of the spear because yeah you know ultimately you want to you want that balance of you know double sided spear you know sword whatever
1: yeah I think if I can kind of riff on that for a second, I think at least in my opinion, emergency management, is not a field that really rewards box checkers. Like if, if your academic journey, you know, to getting the piece of paper. Isn't meaningful. If you don't really, you know, if you, if you think that that's a box you need to check and that you're not invested in taking that opportunity to learn that degree is probably not worth the, the paper it's printed on because you know, it's, it's not about having the thing. I think like some of the, the different, you know, EM certifications are similar. If you think that that's a box you need to check or else, you know, you're not going to get a certain type of job. That's just not true. You can get many different types of emergency management jobs without whichever certification. Um, but if you use that opportunity to really try to understand the problems of the field. Yeah. Like that, that's great. That's what, that's what's needed. And, you know, it's, it's not about having a degree. It's about having taken the opportunity to learn, which formal education really gives you a, a tremendous opportunity to do. And it's also tr-
0: uh, an opportunity to completely waste it as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: there in my undergrad. um, yeah. I I basically I, I was later when I went to my undergrad because I was already doing other stuff and then I found emergency management. And I like wanted to make it a thing and um. You know, when I graduated, I got a job that basically nobody else in, in my undergrad had one, gotten a job like that, or didn't think it was possible. And the big secret was there was no secret. I just went to my professors and said, "Hey, I really want a job in DC," and they're yeah. like, "Okay, like you got to go to conferences." You you know, uh, one professor had me uh, speak at a um, higher ed symposium. You have to do informational interviews. And all of a sudden, it wasn't just like, you know, it wasn't the degree that got me the job or not got me the job. Honestly, the p- degree probably didn't matter, but it was being the access to the professors and listening to them and doing all the extra stuff. Yeah. Like that can be true for emergency management, but it's actually really no surprise. It's not. It's kind of the process for every other field. If you want to become an accountant or a dentist, you you need to get into somebody that, you know, you need to have access to that dental practice in order to become a partner. Right. Yeah. I don't know.
1: I, I think there's like, I want to say that again, just in, in kind of my, my exposure to, to the field, in my opinion, I think emergency management uniquely, uh, doesn't reward things that are performative. Um, and there, there's a very specific example of someone, someone used to work with who, uh, you know, preparedness and response things would happen and we'd be like we don't really have a role for you here we're going to send you to some school to go get some certification uh and it's you know our addition by subtraction we're going to send you away while we go and do the work uh and so you you end up with this really comprehensive resume of all these different schools and trainings and things but like but nobody trusts (laughs) nobody trusts you to, to actually apply that stuff um yeah and i think like Above all else, you know, emergency management values results and doing stuff. I, I've got kind of a, a rant that I'll try not to dive into about, uh, wanting to help is not good enough. we are, we are meant to be professionals. If, if you want to help, like, great, you're not a, you're not a terrible person, you know, that's, uh, that's not what this is about. If you're not putting the time into being a professional at this. You know, your, your intent is, is limited. In value.
0: Yeah. yeah. No, I, uh, in fact, uh, that exact conversation happened with a family member over Christmas. They were talking <laughs> about all these problems yeah. and I kept, I kept on wanting to say it, you know, cause I care about them. My, my feeling was like, well, what are you doing about it? You know, like, oh, you're bringing up all these issues, not in the family, but like in their, in their community. And I was like, you're not you're not doing anything about it. What are you talking about? Like, um, Patrick McGinn shared, uh, with me a case study or a, a study that was done on people in a room that was filling up with smoke and they wanted to see if, uh, they would say something about it. So first time the person was by themselves and it took them like literally 15 seconds. Oh, they see smoke. Hey, there's some smoke in this room. They put in three actors with, with them. And the actress didn't say anything. It took them like 10 minutes while the smoke was filling into the room. And I could get in the timestamps wrong, but the, like the last one, they had seven people, seven actors in there. And the person never said anything while well, this entire room fills up with smoke because people were just like, you know, like, that wasn't a thing. Like everybody always expects somebody else to do something about it. Yeah. Wanting to help is a great place to start. I actually think it's a sure. fantastic place to start. If you're willing to do something about it, uh, I like the the thought no one else is going to come. Like it's on you. Uh I am not a firefighter or a police officer. I am not, you know, USAR guy, but I'm willing to help them out. I'm willing to do something about it. And so there's, you know, we've been going to like conferences, we've been doing all this stuff to show them like what emergency management can do for them, including uh, there's a story of um an 80 vehicle USAR team circling Louisiana for three days to find a place to, to sleep. I could have done that in 15 minutes as an emergency manager, you know, yeah. parking lot size, you need to coordinate with the County, you know, you can stay there. The, you know, the jail that's not being used or whatever, like there's skill sets that we can help out with, but ultimately mean just talking about it is not good enough. Like you actually have to go and do it. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. And I think there's the-, the rants. It's hard not to do yeah, rants right? when you are <laughs> like. I think the biggest problem with rants, I wouldn't say it's a problem, but the desire for wanting to do rants. And I have to stop myself on almost every single podcast episode now because I hear incredible people like yourself come on here, people who are doing it right. And I really do believe our field can get there. I really do believe that we can yeah. become more professionalized and we have more standards. But sometimes, man, it really feels like we are shooting ourselves in the foot as a field. Like, why are you doing this thing? Is it like, what is compelling you to like still think like this is the the way you should do it when there's has been so much data in in the
1: in the opposite. I don't know. I think there's uh, a little bit of e- ego's the wrong thing, but there's a little bit of like, you know, I, I'm I'm the person that helps people. That that is a, a part of my you know professional identity, uh, and if if my understanding of the field, the problem set, the whatever is, is, you know, uh, demonstrated to be insufficient, then, you know, I'm insufficient as a professional. Uh, yeah. I, so I, th- I think that's a piece of it. And I think you counter that by being a student of the game, by continuing to learn, to read, to, you know, talk, to improve. Um, but yeah, I think there's, uh, there's no shortage of, Interesting and important problems, and you know, if if that's not driving anybody who calls himself an emergency manager, you know, to to come into work each day, like, what are you doing? <laughs>
0: <What>? <laughs> that's like the uh, that's like the um, the title of the podcast. Like, what are you doing <laughs> with Brad Milliken? The we, we're basically out of time. In fact, we're like f- fifteen minutes over, and I'm really <laughs> grateful to have you on here. Yeah. yeah. But funny enough, I think we're like a 10th way into the actual conversation. I'd like to have you come back on sometime and talk about this stuff. Yeah. Like ultimately, like what Brad and I are talking about for everybody who's listening in. And it's not just the rants. Like, it's not just like, hey, it's not like problems and solutions. It's more than that. Brad has been doing so much in his career. He's a guy who has a ton of operational experience. Obviously, you can hear it naturally, Brad, as you're talking you also have a lot of education. You're also trying to innovate things. And, you're, and at the same time, you're talking about where innovation comes in and where it should not come in and thinking about uh, the end result. We are a results-oriented field. Brad just called it right out. I agree 100%. You need to show results. You need to show, show results within your own organization, in your community, and re- really with your stakeholders. And as you do that, you will become more influential. So like for all like the personal tips that we're giving this episode or otherwise, like ultimately find a corner in this field that matters to you and and start attacking that in a positive way and lo and behold your life will probably become a little bit easier you'll start to getting you'll get some headwind because you're actually helping um and there's you know you're helping the helpers i love that as as we started uh Brad as you're talking to the audience here at the very end Um, we've, you've already given so many like great pieces of advice. Um, what's the big things for 2024 that an emergency manager should focus on in your perspective?
1: Uh, in terms of like practical things, you know, if, if you're not already journaling, if you're not already finding something to write about, find a reason to write about, find something to write about, uh, you know, write, write about yourself, what you're thinking, how it feels, uh, there, there is you know, immediate professional benefits to that. Uh, I think maybe like a little more, uh, you know, big picture, don't underestimate your ability to have a positive impact. There there are plenty of folks in this field who are not the emergency manager or are not the boss or, you know, the the head honcho or whatever. Um, That's irrelevant. If you consider yourself a, a part of the emergency management field, someone in some way is relying on you so you owe it to them to nail it. Um, and, you know, that that means something different to everybody. But, uh, you know, don't don't lose sight of that, that you have uh, an opportunity to do something good. One of my
0: favorite things that people can write on is the comments of this podcast episode. <laughs> is that a, is that a good is that a good nailed it nailed it. Yeah, th- nailed it. Sweet. We're relying on you to make us <laughs> look good on social media. Uh, seriously, Brad, thank you so much for coming on and for talking to, with me. I really wanted to come back on the, in the spring because uh, we hit on so many different areas that I want to kind of pinpoint uh, some of those and, and dive into them with you um,
1: and, and really for taking the time to come on here. So thanks. Yeah. And I mean, for for you, for Zach, for the the rest of the team, thanks so much for everything that you guys do. You know, I, we talked a little bit about the identity of the emergency manager. What you guys are doing is huge. Uh, so thank, thanks to you for having me on, but also for having this platform. Of course, you know, like ultimately we want people to be successful
0: and um, in, I've talked about in different episodes, but different disasters, uh, I saw areas where we could have done more and faster, to, um, to save and sustain life. And that means being there beforehand, during and after. And I think emergency managers could be more impactful in all those different areas. And uh, honestly, like I was one of those arrogant guys, like four years ago, I thought I knew a lot, two degrees a lot of different disasters and you fast forward and i've had hundreds of interviews with people like you and and different people uh on the on the podcast and i realized that there's so much more to to gain from and like people like you are making the field better and so having you come on the the podcast is ultimately a a huge win for myself and for everybody else so thanks man with that being said if you got something out of this podcast episode you gotta do the thing right like and subscribe comment Brad talked about it at least three times writing in a journal. You can write on the comments. You can do all the different things. If you have a question for Brad, you of course you can email us at contact at the com. and we'll forward it on to him. But if you have a question that can be asked for anybody in the field, if you if you heard something where you're like, oh man, that really makes sense to me, literally just tag him on the, the LinkedIn post or something and say, and I'm sure he'll respond. He's a very approachable guy. He said be approachable. So uh, now he has to be. Big thumbs up from Brad. <laughs> um and it, with that being said we'll see you for the next one peace